Well, good morning, church. Welcome. Uh, this morning, we're continuing with lessons for a quarantine church. This is part five. And working from last week's uh, message, what to do when you can't understand why God doesn't deliver you from your trial. And so the same text, Psalm 119, verse 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Let's just quickly pray. Here we are again, Lord. We're gathering around your word. And you are the great shepherd of the church. And so come and feed your flock now as we study and learn together. Apply your truth to our hearts. Help us not just to understand it, but help us to treasure it. That only your Holy Spirit can do in our lives. Bless your word to us in Jesus' name. Amen. I said last week when we looked at that verse, Psalm 119.71, that it probably doesn't form a list of favorite texts, you know, the kind of things we stick on our fridges. In the first part of this study, which is online, you can, you can uh, see it if you missed it, we noted that God can and does involve himself in our lives in various ways with the trials, with the afflictions that come. That's what the psalmist says. Sometimes he supernaturally removes them, uh, and sometimes he doesn't. We don't have to pretend that he does. Sometimes he uses them to accomplish something in my life that he couldn't accomplish any other way. And if God either causes these things... Theologians debate all of that. Or uses these things, whatever its source. We talked about that last week. The result is, if, depending on my response, as I look to the Lord and trust in him, the result is always going to be good when God uses these things in our lives. So by good, uh, I don't mean comfortable, and I don't mean pleasant, but it'll be, it'll be good. So the important point of understanding that we nailed down last, last Sunday, it was the need to recognize the kind of good that God is always working toward. He is out more than anything else to make me like Jesus, to conform me, shape me, not to have me conformed or shaped like the world, 12, 1 and 2 of Romans, but to conform me, shape me, uh, 8, 28, 29 of Romans, the shape of Jesus, the likeness of Jesus. And it is very important for us all to, I think, reckon the fall in the entry of sin. You have to think of that when you're considering the different ways God works in our lives, even as Christians. If the fall had never taken place, uh, if sin had not entered this world and entered our very natures, then all God would have to do to change me would be to give me information. He would tell me what to do. I would do it. He would supply the data. We would listen. We would learn. We would obey. But, but that's not just quite the way it works. The fall did take place. 
We do live in a fallen planet. We are still growing and being shaped into the likeness of Christ. So now, now that sin has entered the picture, not only do I need information, but I'm probably a lot like you. I don't just need information. I frequently need correction. I don't just need data, uh, a theological download. Frequently, uh, I need realigning, readjusting. And, and in that correcting kind of realigning process, God can frequently bring spiritual good into my dark heart with the tool of affliction. So basically, that's what we covered in the first part of this message. And we need now to get a little bit more specific. What, what is affliction specifically designed to do? Trials, trouble. I'm using all those words together. What are they supposed to do in my life? And, and why can't God accomplish this goal of Christ-likeness without affliction? That would be my preference. So in today's verse, Psalm 119.71, the psalmist gives us one central piece of the answer of what makes affliction valuable. Properly received affliction. He, he tells us that the primary value of trials and difficulties and afflictions in my life, when they're used by the Lord, he tells me that their primary value is their teaching power. You can see it right there in the last part of the 71st verse. It is good for me that I was afflicted. So there you have the statement of fact. That, now he's going to give us why. Afflictions can be good. That I may learn your statutes. Pretty simply put, afflictions in all their varied forms, they can, um, they can teach me God's ways in a way that pleasures never can. That's what he's saying. I can, if I keep my heart right, I can learn a great deal about myself I can learn a great deal about God, and I can learn a great deal about generally things spiritual that I wouldn't know apart from trial and affliction. So, so that's our subject today. How can spiritual profit come from painful situations? Because it seems counterintuitive a little bit. What can we learn from trials, and why is it so important? Point number one, only trials can teach perseverance in the Christian life. I don't know about you. I have never had to persevere through times of pleasure. I've never had to persevere through times of great comfort. I've never had to endure times of prosperity. You just coast through those things. It's almost, it's almost impossible to learn perseverance through the experience of delight. But afflictions, well, well they're different. They, they kind of wear at you. They make you use spiritual muscles. It's like when you go out in the spring and you're digging up your garden and you're using muscles that you haven't used all winter and you feel it. 
See, that's what trials do. They, they make you use muscles. They, they kind of gnaw at your faith. They can sap your joy. They make you hold on. That's what Paul was getting at in Romans 5, 3. Not only this, but we also exult. Wow. We exult in our tribulations. Why would anybody do that? Well, knowing, so there's an understanding here, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Here's one of the reasons God uses trials in our lives. Just about everything in this world is designed to make us devalue patience. I, I can remember when I first started out in the ministry, just married, so you're down in the mid-70s, getting upset about something and, and, and wanting, maybe I read something in a magazine or a newspaper and I'd, I'd be upset and I'd want to address it and you'd want to fire off a letter. There's a terminology. Of course, you have to get a piece of paper and then you get a pen and then sentence by sentence, you write out what you want to say. Oh, but then you don't have an envelope. You've got to find an envelope. You take the letter, you fold it up, you put it in the envelope, you seal it. You don't have a stamp. You go to the post office, you get a stamp. You come back with a stamp, you put it on the envelope. Then you write the address on the envelope. By the time you get all that done, you just cooled off and you never send the letter. But today... Everything in our culture is designed to lessen the value and the need for patience. You're like me. You're working at your computer, and, and for some reason you see that little hourglass spinning while something's waiting to connect, and it's been 15 seconds, 20 seconds, and you're just about pulling your hair out. And you want to communicate with somebody, you send them a text. We're not lining up at the post office. And you want to cook something, you, you fire it up in the microwave. We don't wait at the bank anymore. You can do your depositing and all your banking online. You don't have to wait for, you don't have to wait for very much. But here's the problem. We, we still live in a world where you need patience to have a good marriage. You need patience to build a prayer life. You need patience to study God's word. You need patience to get together with and get along with people in the body of Christ. Everything of worthwhile, of, of value, still requires patience, only there's very little in our society to teach us patience. And you start to see one of the reasons God uses these things to develop perseverance. Perseverance. And you can learn perseverance really only through the experience of trial and difficulty. The Apostle Peter talks about this. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, I like that necessary part, you have been distressed by various trials. He's not thinking of any one particular one. Various trials. So that, so that the proof of your faith, 
being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found, see at the end of the process, may be found to result. There's what it produces. To result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So just notice, again, success isn't what purifies my faith. Nor does peace, nor does pleasure, nor does wealth. Trials are, Peter says, necessary. Trials result in the proving and purifying of my faith. James makes the same point. He makes it even more direct. James 1, 2, and 4. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith, here it is, same idea as the Romans 5 text, produces endurance. Paul used perseverance. James says, endurance. That's what these things produce. And let endurance have its perfect result. Takes time. So that, can you believe it? You may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. It's only because we know those words so well that they don't slap us in the face the way they should. It's almost unbelievable. He's saying that trials are the funnel. They're the funnel through which God pours everything of worth into my life. It's how God completes my life. It's how he perfects my life. So that's the first point. Only trials, difficulties, those are the only things that produce endurance. The psalmist says, it was good that I was afflicted. I learned your ways. Okay, point number two. Only trials teach us to exercise faith in the future grace of God on our behalf. So trials force the exercise of faith because they remove the visible appearance of God's presence and help for a season. So so they cause me to walk not by sight anymore, but by faith. Affliction, trial, in, in whatever form, what it does is it removes some of the visible supports from my life. All I have is the promise of God. Circumstances have gone sour. External joys and pleasures, they seem to be stripped away. And I'm forced to decide, okay, will you continue to trust in God? Trials force that decision. Maybe that's the greatest value of afflictions. They force the issue of faith. They, they, they make me think about God. They make... The removal of other things helps to make God the main thing in my life. Like pleasures never can. So they make me look at his word. The very very contradiction of my pain, my discouragement. The very uh, contradiction makes me look again, perhaps more closely at the promises of God. But you never see the benefit of afflictions 
while you're experiencing them. They, they don't feel productive when you're right in the middle of them. You have to exercise faith that God will bring something more precious, something better out of them than what you can possibly see right at the moment. The writer of Hebrews talks more directly about God's chastening hand on our lives. I'm not saying all trials are, but this text is. Hebrews 12, 11. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it. See, there's the response. Afterwards, there's the time element. It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Isn't it interesting? Fruit. The fruit of righteousness. My experience is this. Virtually all Christians say they want to be righteous. Think of all the songs. You know, we're not gathering together now, but think of all the songs. You've been in church, many of you, for years and years and years. How many songs you sang with closed eyes and upraised hands, praying for God to make you more holy and more righteous, treasuring him above all. But how, so how does righteousness come? Do I just ask for it? Well, it depends on the kind of righteousness you're talking about. The Bible has several different types. So the imputed righteousness of Christ covers my sinful self with the righteousness of Jesus. So that comes on my behalf the instant I make him Lord of my life. My life is covered, so to speak, in the righteousness of Jesus, and that righteousness is a free gift. Nobody earns it or deserves it. But that's not the righteousness the, the writer of Hebrews is talking about, about, about trials, being trained by them, and afterwards having it yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. He's not talking about being clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. He's talking about, he's talking about the righteousness of habit and action. He's talking about a righteousness that doesn't come instantly as a free gift, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, but the righteousness that comes like a fruit, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. It's the righteousness of obedience. It's the righteousness of dedicated loyalty. It's the righteousness of holy habit. But there, there's something else that he tells us about how this righteousness comes and how it grows in our lives. He says, he says you, you don't see this harvest of righteousness arriving immediately. All at once. When you're under the chastening hand of the Lord, that's what he's talking about in that text. All you feel is the affliction. All you feel is the difficulty. And you can't, you can't imagine anything worthwhile coming out of it at all. There doesn't seem to be anything good in the picture. But that text promises that it is there, if I continue to trust and obey God, something good is being planted, but it's being planted in seed form. It's the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Character is being grown. God hasn't stopped working. He's working in a different way. Holiness is in, is in the making. The promise is there, and the promise in trial is all you have to go on. 
Affliction forces faith. This was the second point. Affliction forces faith in the future grace of God. Three, we're almost done. Only trials teach me how fleeting and transitory the things of this world really are. Uh, Trials remove many of the things I cherish and rely on. Maybe it's our health, perhaps a loved one, perhaps financial security. But, but that's what affliction does in all of its forms. In one way or another, afflictions strip the external comforts from my life. John says, 1 John 2.17, the world is passing away. And also its lusts, its desires. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. So, so that idea, the world is passing away. I mean, we all know it's passing away. Our clothes wear out. We've been to the cemetery. We know we're aging. We look in the mirror. We know the world's passing away. But, but it's one of those things we know and don't know at the very same time. So, so for all of our intellectual understanding that the things of the world don't satisfy and they don't last forever, I still frequently live like they're going to last forever. Just like they are now. And, and we value earthly things like they really can provide. Permanent security, permanent joy, deep satisfaction. But they don't. But, but, but how do we learn that they don't? The psalmist says, this is where afflictions can teach that I learn your ways. We learn, we learn truths we already know, but we really learn them in a living way. That's what happens. We experience the grit and power of truth we already know. We experience it in times of trial, difficulty, and affliction. We, we learn not only that the world is passing away generally as some kind of truth, but so is our health, so is our wonderful job, so is our clean bill of health, so is last year's raise, so is our best friend. Only trials can teach our heart what our head already knows. Four. Trials can awaken a careless heart and soften a stubborn will into repentance. Because, because God is not willing that any should perish, he labors by all his wise, powerful, imaginative spirit to, to do as much correcting work in our lives now before we come into permanent condition of our eternal state when he comes again. You know, there's, there's those words. We read them at just about every communion service, kind of without talking about them very much, because they're not comforting right on the surface. Where, where Paul says, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight to 32, he says, a man must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. 
Wow. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. It's a powerful text. So, so Paul tells us just how seriously God examines the attitudes of my heart toward my own sin and toward his gracious provision on the cross. And, and Paul says people who just, who just think they can have a religious routine and play games with sin and grace, they're in deep trouble because, like all of us, one day they'll pass into eternity, they'll face final judgment, and you can't make any adjustments then. So in that text, Paul says God, God does everything in his power to awaken people to their carelessness here and now. So these people who are afflicted in verse 30, they aren't being persecuted by demons or the devil. Paul's very clear about the source of their affliction. Verse 32, when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord. And then the reason, 32, when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. And so God loves me so much that he will go to any lengths whatsoever to keep me from being condemned along with the world. He loves me more than he loves my comfort, and he can use trial, difficulty, affliction, not just physical affliction as in our text, but affliction in countless forms to awaken me to my own carelessness, my own stubbornness. Now here's where I want to wrap this up. Let me, let me give you three pieces of quick advice on how not to miss the benefits of God's season of trial when it comes. Okay, so this is point number five, three quick encouragements. How not to miss the blessing of trials, the season of affliction. A, don't murmur against God when trials come. Um, Affliction only brings the teaching of God's ways, the learning of perseverance, the purifying of wrong attitudes and sins, whatever, whatever direction God steers it. They are only fruitful in the heart that receives them without murmuring and complaining. B, don't judge the whole of God's work in your life by just seeing a part of it. Maybe that's the most important point of all. You, you don't usually see the value of trials and afflictions while you're under them. I was looking at the way David worded things in the text we're studying tonight. That's Psalm 11971. He says, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. He says, was. I was afflicted. Past tense. So, so as David writes these words, he's, he's looking at some kind of experience that as he looks back on it, was good for him in a way that he didn't see while he was in the middle of it. See, last point. Here's a mistake we can make over and over again. Never sever 
ties to God or his people when you're afflicted. So, so resist and refuse the impulse to protest with your feet by staying home, the impulse to quit, the impulse to mope. There is good to come. Sow in tears, you will come again, reaping with joy, but you, you mustn't quit in the sowing phase. So, so never forget it, church. God is so loving and so powerful, so wise and so good that there is absolutely nothing beyond his wisdom to use in your life and in mine to make us more like Christ, and he can be resolutely trusted to do it. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Let's pray. Some lessons are more easily learned than others. And we all just gather, however long we've walked with you, we gather as children at your feet. And we want to acknowledge that you are good, your ways are good. Not all circumstances are pleasant. But there aren't any circumstances that in your sovereign wisdom you cannot use to teach us your ways in a deeper and fuller way. Give our hearts the proper hungers to long for your will and way in Christ-likeness more than we are satisfied with anything else. Just deepen our appetite for you, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.